After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I am your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me... Once again is Mr. Adam Wilson. Hey, man, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Excellent. People will remember your dulcet, dulcet tones from the last time you were on the show, which actually made it on the CBC podcast playlist. We talked about Norm McLaren on that show. We sure did. It was amazing that it went on to the CBC because it's the first time I've ever been paid for being on a podcast. It was the first time I've ever been paid for making a podcast. So we have that in common. We'd like to thank the CBC for the money. And thank you to the taxpayers for the money for the CBC. If you're a taxpayer, give yourself a clap on the back. Well done. We're very proud of you. If you're not a taxpayer, then you can't complain. Those are the rules. We've uh, we've got also a guest today that I am very excited about. So Adam's here, of course, because Cam is still on the road doing the... No, he's done the BAFTAs. Now he's doing the Indie Spirit Awards and has to watch every single nominated film for the Indie Spirits and just not cannot handle any more greatness, which is unfortunate because this is a great movie that I think you really would have loved. Let me bring on our guest. We're talking to Chloe Sosa Sims today. How are you, Chloe? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Now, you are a filmmaker and a documentarian. That's correct. About social issues. I would say so. I think that's what most documentary filmmakers make films about, but not necessarily. Some people make them about food that they like. I watched the General Tsao one the other day, and it was like, this is just two guys that got hungry and high. (laughs) And we're like, let's make a movie about where this came from. It's probably a better idea. True. I mean, most social activism comes from getting high, right? Oh, absolutely. That's no. what you're figuring out? No. Okay. Not, well, <laughs> you're on record with that? Well, we can talk about that when the mic's not on. Totally fair. Now, you have a film that's out right now and a film you're working on. I don't know how much you can talk about the one you're working on, but what's the film that, uh, that you created? Um, yeah, so I made a film called Dan and Margot. Um, it came out a couple years ago, and it's about a young woman with schizophrenia who's basically coming to terms with her diagnosis. Um, it was actually a close friend of mine from childhood, so uh-huh. it's a very personal film. I'm sort of in it as well and um that was interesting so yeah how did you get involved with uh with making stories about things that existed and about um uh, even about your own personal influences yeah i mean i had always i had always worked in film i actually worked at hot docs for quite a few years i was um an industry programmer there and i think i just got to a point where i was tired of telling filmmakers how to make films um without doing it myself ah yes <laughs> I had that whole, like, um, identity crisis. Um, so I decided that I should make films myself. And I think uh, the films that make the most sense often are something that's, like, very personal to you or extremely connected to your life and an existence in some way. And I think um, the experience I had with Margot was one of the most um, sort of, like, sh- soul-shaking experience in my life. So I thought it was worth exploring in a film. Good. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's really interesting in terms of the film you picked today, uh, because we're looking at a filmmaker who more often than not is actually an editor for other people's films and films which are very, very good films. But this is what happens when the editor steps in, in behind the camera and not and out of the editing room. Is that what I'm trying to say, Adam? 
That's pretty good. Okay, great. <laughs> as long as that made sense. Um, and create something that they find meaningful. And I think that's something very similar to kind of your experience of like, I'm not going to tell people how to how to do it. I'm not going to craft other people's stories. I'm going to make my own damn story. What movie did you pick today? I chose Monkey Warfare. Yeah, from 2006. I had not heard of this film before and was very upset with myself for not having heard of it. Had you heard of this one, Adam? I had not heard of this one oh, before. Oh, interesting. But the amount of... Canadian movies that I haven't heard of could be like a whole other podcast. And yet you know everything about Norma Claren. That's just fascinating to me. I like to be specific. <laughs> You're like, I only have so much yeah. time. I'm going to pick the thing I nerd out over. Yeah. Like I've probably spent like dozens of hours watching one filmmaker instead of dozens of hours watching a bunch of filmmakers. That's my personality. That seems fair. So of all the movies you could have picked, why did you pick this one, Chloe? Uh, yeah, I, I have a distinctive memory of this uh, film from university, actually. I was taking a Canadian film course, and I don't think I even knew whether I liked Canadian film yet. Um, I think I had very mixed feelings um, about it. And this film really, to me, um, made me appreciate Canadian film again. Um, I think I think I related to it deeply at the time um, in terms of um, by culture and sort of a sense of cynicism and apathy, but also a political activism and not really knowing what that meant yet to me. Um, and it was just, it's just like a funny and sort of satirical film, but also kind of sweet. Um, it, and it really brings in so many like larger social issues into like a very small personal story. So there's just so many things going on. I actually feel like, uh, well, we're going to talk about it, but <laughs> I feel like there's just so much yeah. uh, to the film to talk about because it's not it's not straightforward. It's not just what you're seeing on the film that's happening. There's a lot of other things playing well, into Adam, it. Well, Adam, you brought up a great point that this may be one of the first films about the Toronto housing crisis. I, I like watching it now in 2019 and we all live in Toronto and I probably had to deal with renting here or not you can't even buy it. you none of us are ever dreaming of buying a house in Toronto I don't think but we definitely have to find a place to live and I like that this is one of the first early examples of acknowledging uh, it's set in Parkdale and acknowledging that's a gentrifying neighborhood and how that actually does drive the plot of the sort of the denouement of the movie I hope I said that correctly your you know, Canadian status is in check you said the French right Terrific. Um, we'll qualify for another year of funding. The housing crisis is sort of in the backdrop of the urgency of these characters, and I really related to that. What I just really liked about this movie, it, since I, I'm going to go on the record and saying it's really, really good. It's and I'm, really good. I'm glad you picked a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easier to talk about. But what I enjoyed was we we can talk a lot about social activism. We can talk about the people who actually take that activism out of from behind the computer and into the streets and then I like the question like what does that look like 15 20 years later and that and one of the impressions I got from watching this movie is like at what point are you not is it ego that is driving you to live they kind of can we talk? Are we allowed to get into the plot? And We're going to get into the plot. First and foremost, let's throw it back over to yes. Chloe. Chloe, would you mind telling us what this is about? We know it's activists. We know there's bikes. We know there's Parkdale. 
what's going on? Who are these people? Okay. Well, it's interesting. Am I allowed to say that I read the sales kit for the film? 100%. I did not memorize the synopsis, but the one thing I noticed was they describe it as two ex-revolutionaries. Interesting. um, Living in Parkdale and um, looking for um, old found objects, selling it on the internet to rich people. And at the beginning of this film, you you know, it's this it's this two people, um, they're partners, you don't know if it's a romantic or sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And then Dan, um, the male protagonist in the film, he meets um, this young sort of marijuana dealer, this pretty young potential revolutionary um, who he starts hanging out with. And it sort of uh, reinvigorates something in him. And you're not quite sure if it's sexual or if it's... Um, if it's more than that, if it's something different. And he starts sort of teaching her um, about the 60s and the Black Panthers and like the various different revolutionary figures. He introduces her to like amazing music from the 60s. Um, And then his partner or his roommate, he likes to call her, comes back into the picture. And that creates a sort of complicated dynamic with Susan around. Um, and then from there, lots of things happen. I don't know if I want to reveal too much. We can spoil this. I'm going to say right away, this movie is available on iTunes. Guys, go rent it. It's four bucks. It's great. Maybe not like a first date movie, unless you're like a super intellectually sort of type and like you're all right with like getting into people's politics right away to know what you're dealing with. Uh, maybe what in a third date? What are we saying? I actually know a couple friends of ours who this was their first date movie. Really? Yeah. Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> Sorry, I'll take that out. But like, man, that's, that does not surprise me. These are two people who are like very smart, very thinky. It makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. This is totally a smart person. It's a thinking movie. There's so much going on in it. There's so many layers, like you said, Chloe. Initially, this film and how it was made, I don't think we mentioned that uh, Dan is played by Don McKellar. Uh, Tracy Wright plays, uh, Su- not Susan, Linda plays Linda. And then Susan is played by now filmmaker, actress Nadia Lutz. Um, so you've got like a triple threat of amazing actors who have great chemistry. Um, I was going to call them the powerhouse duo of Don McKellar and Tracy Wright because, I mean, Don McKellar, you you don't ask him to be in something if it's not... Well, you don't ask 2006 Don McKellar to be in something unless it's good. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, he was on a he was on a roll at this point. So uh, at the end of the '90s, I mean, people who listen to this podcast will know. At the end of the '90s, he was unstoppable. He had Last Night Out. He had the Red Violin. He was uh, working with everybody that could be uh, could be everybody. And he, he I wrote mean, the he, screenplay for Jose Saramago's Blindness, which ended up being starring Julianne Moore. And that's, that's right. It's crazy. He adapted that novel because Jose Saramago is he's a Portuguese Nobel Prize winner who writes unreadable dense <laughs> kind he of actually uh, had to go personally to portugal to talk to him before he passed away to make sure that he was able to secure the rights and he did a full pitch for him to like confirm so dude is legit he puts everything he can into it and uh this movie is legit as well in terms of the way it breaks down how revolutionaries work so guys how does this work in terms of a history lesson and do you feel it's a history lesson yeah i mean is it a history lesson i I don't think it necessarily informs you about revolution, um, that the revolutions that took place in the 60s, except for um, sort of major um, rebel organizations. And obviously there's a lot about the music of the time, I think is maybe Mm -hmm. um, the biggest sort of like name dropping history lesson. 
Um, um, I think it's more about it's the question of like, what does it mean um, to be a revolutionary and um, what are those actions? How do those actions actually change society? So I think in the film when um, Susan, the, the young character, we eventually, I don't know if we want to go here yet, but we eventually find out um, that she's smashing, destroying SUVs. And I remember at one point, Linda's like, how is smashing an SUV going to change the world, Susan? Mm-hmm. Tell me this. And I think it's a very... It's a very interesting question in today's culture because there is still there's not it's not like the 60s in terms of like there's not these established um, organizations that we know of, but maybe there is. I'm not sure I should know, know if I should say that, but well, you um, got but, anonymous, you got stuff like that, right? Yeah. That are doing things. Yeah. But it's not there's not the same sort of collective movement that we saw then, but there's something happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is, like, what is it actually doing it? When you are um, part of a grassroots anti-established movement, when you're not part of the political institutions, how much change and influence can you actually have? And when is it just damage and destruction? And when is it actually creating? Yeah. When what- you tear stuff down without a plan to build it back up again, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, Susan is a youthful character and her it's hard not to see her actions as like childish vandalism in a way, right? Like she see she rides she in the movie she's always on her bike and she's always flipping off cars, and so of course her primary target when she starts acting out it becomes like SUVs, which are the cars that are destroying the planet, and making it difficult to be alive in Toronto, especially if you ride a bike. It feels like she just picked something that was personally an aggressor towards her and made, chose to. It, it doesn't feel like it's thought out. It feels like she's taking what she wants from what she's learned from Dan and putting it into a personal practice instead of a sort of larger framework, which is what eventually they try to teach her when they say, like, why, why do you think smashing SUV is going to change anything? She's not being strategic and she's not targeting things. So in terms of going back to the history lessons, I feel that's, the lesson isn't necessarily, I feel like as if I was a young person, if I was still like 16, 17, 18, and I watched this movie, it wouldn't, I wouldn't need the lesson from the movie. It would give me the tools I need to go and find QEP Newton or the RAF if I was, if that was what I wanted to go and look at. So they, it's like a footnotes instead of a full history. Like they're putting the footnotes in the movie. And because it's an editor directing it, he's using these kind of like inserts. I read somewhere that, this movie seemed to be influenced by Godard and French New Wave. And I'm like, the guy's an editor. Yeah. That's basically why I think that's like that. But that's... Uh, Le Chinois is apparently the big influence for him, which if people haven't seen, that's a Godard film, which is uh, very much about student revolution and what that looks like. And this is, I think, Canadian student revolution because it is saying a lot of things and it is um, very tight, but it's a, a, a movie about why violence isn't always the answer. And about the ramifications of using violence to get what you want. And I don't think, 
I, I've read reviews where people are like, oh, it's so hopeful at the end that like they've now taken her under her wing and now they can all move forward. I think this is a very bleak film. I think it's heartbreaking that these are people mm-hmm. that are so trapped within the system that they want to break out of that they then have to stay within the system and they're hiding out, but who cares about what they've done and except for themselves, they've made prisons for themselves. And I'm like, this is so sad, but in a funny sort of way and you love them because they're Don McKellar and Tracy Wright. Um, do you guys find this hopeful in any way or optimistic? I don't think so. Um, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily hopeful. I mean, I think um, Susan represents the next generation, um, and Who just wants to smash it. She just wants to smash it, and yeah. at the end, um, at the ending of the film, she's um, injured herself, and I don't think it's necessarily. You don't get any sense that that it's helped or improved the situation it was supposed to. Um, So I don't think so. I think these people are very cynical. And I think the hope in the film is the couple's um, ability to find themselves again and find their spark in their relationship again and um, have a better understanding of their history and where they are now. I think it's more about acceptance and... Um, making the best of your situation in a way. What do you think, Adam? Uh, yeah, I think like you know, the last question was sort of about history. I don't think it's a movie about looking back. It sort of gives him, if anything, he gets a chance to re-examine how he got to where he is now. So, but it's also what I like about this movie is like it's like what happens when you add twenty years to youthful. It's like activism and wanting to change the world are very youthful properties. What does it look like when you're middle-aged and the world is still pretty much the same? And that's what I, you know, they're living this life because because of their actions in the past. But it's also they're avoiding accountability for the injuries they've caused and they're sort of stuck in this weird purgatory because of these principles that they're still trying to adhere to. And at what point are you living a life because you believe in it at what point are you living a life because it's the only option you've given yourself is i think one of the questions of the movie and it's coming back to having the susan character come in like you need a catalyst to like sort of re-examine things. like they're in a very static place when the movie begins the relationship between linda and dan so one of the movies, or one of the things that I think you guys will find interesting is that this film, originally when they sold it, when the producer was going on the trail with it, it had a different ending tacked on because they wanted to be able to sell it as optimistic. And at the end of the movie, in the version they were going to sell, so at the end of the movie, we'll totally spoil it, Nadia lets his character firebombs a house and gets seriously injured and burned in the uh, in the aftermath. And the last line is a punchline, which is fabulous. In the ending they tacked on, it was all three of them on a beach all together and Nadia Letts took, takes her bandages off and she's all healed and better and they just listen to records as they as they watch the sun the, the sunset together and they've just abandoned Toronto altogether and have gone to live on the beaches. Ah. I know your face <laughs> right now is so good, Chloe. You're like, why? Oh, but, it's, it's like Brazil. But it's like Brazil, exactly. But people need that like... 
needed, I guess, for, for sales, needed that joy initially of like, oh no, it's okay. They're revolutionaries, but they're all going to be okay. And now they found family and they found each other. But I don't think that's what this is. I think you're right, Chloe, that they find themselves and that's what they needed to do. They were so buried in the past, they need to figure out how they were going to move forward. But this isn't about finding family. And if anything, everyone's more fucked for having met each other. <laughs> But it's interesting because this is, um, I didn't know anything about the Squamish Five because in Canada, we are very, very good at burying our history that's unpalatable under the rug. Did, had you guys heard about the Squamish Five before? Do you know who this is? Absolutely not. This is, they were a terrorist group working out of Squamish. They called themselves Direct Action. Squamish Five was the media name that they were given. And they are basically these guys, and everything's based on this, where they uh, were blowing up a missile defense place. They, they firebombed a missile defense place. They firebombed a whole bunch of porn uh, video um, locations because there was rumors going around that they were making snuff films there. So in a thing of feminism, they were firebombing all these. So they actually did things but what happened was is that a security guard did get seriously injured in the same way um and tracy's uh, tracy wright's character is based on one of the squamish five but the whole thing was okay they did these things they actually took action they believed the only way you could make things happen was to get in people's faces and and through violence because politics weren't going to get you anywhere and they did stuff but we've forgotten about them or we've been they, it's all been swept under the rug like you guys didn't even know they were people i didn't know they were people so what good did that violence do like even the flq crisis we talked about that in one of our first episodes we watched the documentary um from the nfb and watching that i'm like holy shit they declared full martial law trudeau was like just watch me and everything i can do like it's bananas and we just swept that under the rug and this feels like a movie about sweeping things under the rug because we have to we have to move forward what do you guys think yeah i mean i think that's uh it's frightening that none of us had heard of them um and it makes me think that um a film like this one um should be seen now um for that reason like um i feel like Today, we see things being swept under the rug all of the time in politics. And um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like maybe maybe we need to get this film seen again. And we're so comfortable. Like there was a time when like bombings were common. That's like you look at uh, in the 70s during Vietnam and people were bombing shit. Like the, the Black Panthers were genuinely terrifying. There was actual action happening, right? Not that they didn't have, you know, their reasons for doing what they were doing. Not going to say that. But that violence seemed to be the only answer at that point. And that's something I feel like is coming up now more and more. And that's something this movie is addressing is, is violence the way to get what you want? Or do you be like SLC punk it and become part of the system and break it from within, right? I mean, we're, we're living in a city that has seen some violence in the last couple of years of, of like, like large scale violence, but of a personally directed nature. And there's nothing romantic about the violence in this movie. The movie yeah. begins with, the firebombing of the security guard and it's kind of off-putting i was not sure what the movie was going to be at this point and it doesn't it doesn't glamorize any of <laughs> the you know the means that the of, of violence um like the scene where they the spoke club not uh, susan's character has like a little gang of anonymous bike which punks who the, beat up this SUV. The spoke club, it's cute, right? Like, there's something exactly. very cute it's about very that. It's very childlike, again. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's a tantrum. It's it's very much what I've seen spoiled rich kids believe to be... <laughs> Activism. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. That's what the movie's kind of pointing out. 
but it's horror. It's it it's shot really well in that it's it, there's nothing exciting about the violence in terms of like oh that looks fun. It 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 looks genuinely like scary, and it's you know it creates problems for uh, for Dan. Mm-hmm. Reginald Harkama, who I don't, or Harkema, I'm, my apologies, Reginald, I'd like to have you on the show at some point, and I will ask you how to pronounce your name. Uh, but uh, if we've talked already about how he's an editor, he is a prolific editor of some of your favorite movies, including Goon, which we are all about on this podcast as one of the best edited films ever made. Um, he's worked with Guy Madden. He's worked with Don McKellar on his other stuff. This is him stepping out and making his own thing. He was a young punk rock kid. Apparently there's a story about him um, being at a DOA concert and getting upset about some of the stuff Joe Shithead was saying about religion and he uh, ended up on stage like tearing banners down and they kicked him out. He was angry. He was punk rock. This feels like a punk rock's kid reaction or punk rock adults reaction to his punk rock youth. And I think that's kind of fascinating to me because what happens when the punks grow up, they fuck shit up, but they don't know how to fix it. And I think that's kind of what this looks like is you either go to the place where like you talk to the big game and you, but all you do now is you smoke pot and you sift through garbage and you live a life that you don't want to be living, sifting through garbage, be it paperwork or be it literal garbage, you know, or you then become part of society and you break stuff because you, you knew it needed to be fixed, but you break it irreparably because that's all you were able to do. Do you, can you guys feel the punk in this movie? Yeah, I would <laughs> say so. I mean, I feel like, I mean, the music, the soundtrack, like that sells um, the punk lifestyle for sure. Um, But you get the sense, like, they were sort of, like, they were dumpster divers before I feel like we were talking about dumpster diving. It's very shabby. Like, it's it's a very bleak existence, them, like, just riding their bikes through alleys and finding stuff. It's what they've inflicted on themselves, right? And it's their own punishment for what they feel. Well, Tracy Wright's punishment, and then Dan is just such a... um, I mean, it's Don McKellar playing another male dud. It's what he does. <laughs> like, he's ineffectual and he's along for the ride. Like, he didn't have to run with Tracy Wright's character. He could have gone and done anything, but he was like, no, we're part of the team and I have to follow you because you're the brave one. You're the one who threw the Molotov cocktail. I got to go with you. And that's also a fascinating point of view that the women here are the... S- the women here are the ones that are the drivers of the action and the dudes are the ones that are along for the ride. That's fascinating. And I think... I mean, if we're going to talk about the female characters, they're like two very opposing um, figures of femininity. Actually, I would would say there's three Mm -hmm. um, opposing figures of femininity because, of course, there's Susan who's like weirdly childlike but also quite sexualized and very beautiful and slim and very sort of the stereotypical idea of um, youth and beauty. Um, and then Tracy's character is, um, I remember she like says this line at one point about how she had an abortion once and <clears throat> the woman she's talking to was like, oh, that must've been hard. She was like, no, I was what? good. That's nope. what I wanted. Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was like great because, um, that's like not necessarily a female character that we see a lot. Who's just like, yeah, no, I'm good. Who's also not apologizing. Tracy writes character until the very, very end apologizes for nothing she just is and i think that's so rare to see and it's fabulous so great point absolutely and i i I love her character in this she's very subtle yeah Yeah. and then there's the woman at the she works at this um humanitarian cause and there's another it's, it's hers isn't it isn't it her humanitarian cause or is she just volunteer there she's like the i think she's like an admin person for this charity and but she's sort of 
weirdly the boss of Linda because Linda's volunteering. Like that's the, I think that's like if we're going to put out point out like a, a gender difference right there. It's like Linda's still involved with causes, still trying to use her time well, and her partner or whatever is at home trying to find weed. Yeah. <laughs> Which is his role. I mean, his job is to get the numbing agent, right? Like, their panic at the fact that they've lost their dealer is pretty palpable. And, I mean, that's part of the inciting incident and how they meet Susan and why they need it is because they can't numb out anymore because they can't get a hold of weed. If only this movie was set in 2019. What would this movie look like in 2019? He's set in Scarborough, where people can be poor. <laughs> I don't... I mean, that. I didn't mean that to sound as glib as that, but it even they couldn't afford to live in Parkdale. There's no way they could get a lease without, like they would, they couldn't get a lease in the movie, which would pretty much preclude them from living anywhere east of Scarborough mm-hmm. or west of Scarborough. It's weird because it's like it's like um it's an early predictor, like you said sort of before about the Toronto housing crisis. It's like an early predictor of a, what's about to come. So, what makes it feel dated is, I mean, it's. It's very evidently shot. It's shot on film, but you can. It feels a little bit dated, and I think the nature of the marijuana um, discussions in it, like they talk about how the, you know, how dangerous it is to get weed in the film. Well, like that would be no question today, right? That wouldn't even be a plot point, I don't think. Well, yeah, you could get any. I mean, I noticed like they call it dope, and uh, Susan calls it weed, mm-hmm. which is like a generational shift there, which they walk the line on that. Um, in 2019, I feel like in 2019, Dan and Tracy or Dan and Linda would have office jobs. There's the talk about the personal punishment, like they're, they're, they're living this life, but it's not really penitent in a way. It is also, they're trying to keep from being caught and imprisoned. Like the whole movie, there's this like sort of, there's police cars everywhere. And there's always this vague threat of being pulled over and being identified as a criminal. Like, which they are, right? We're rooting for these people who sort of, they're not taking, they're not being accountable for something they've done, even though their whole activism is about holding corporations, government accountable for the things they do. There's this kind of hypocrisy, which is not really laid to out for everybody to see, but it's there. I think, I think what's interesting about that too is like, we're rooting for these people who are criminals, um, but that's not, it never bothers me. No, um, I mean, I, I, they got, they didn't mean to cause these things that, you know, the, the, you know, she says, like, I disfigured and maimed a person and that's why we're here. It was accidental, but they were, that's also like, that's what happens to Susan at the end. She doesn't mean to injure herself, but that, that's what happens when you invite this kind of violent, you know, sort of when you act unilaterally <laughs> in a way that's outside of the system, it, there are going to be things that go wrong. It's something I think I appreciate about this film too is both the moments of violence and the moment of catharsis feel earned. And you were talking earlier about uh, Monsieur Lazare, and that that is a film also that's very small and very tight about very small horrific things, but small things. And that the the breakdown the little boy has in that film totally earned. It's the same thing here. Tracy writes breakdown of what she did and her confession and that's the first, like you 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 saw what happened in the beginning and I actually like that you see that violence you see the horror and you're like oh yeah seeing that and 
knowing that you didn't want to hurt that person, you just wanted to burn this building down, that that's what she's been living with. And you're like, oh, I get it. And you get that beautiful callback and, and full circle. And I think that's an editor's trick, right? The editor would know exactly this is the image we have to see at the very beginning. And he's so good at images. We have to see this at the beginning so that when you get the callback at the end, you can have that moment where it sinks in and drops and goes, oh my God. And then again, you get the echo when you see Susan and she's all wrapped in the bandages and her face is obviously fucked up underneath it. And the fact that she was so beautiful beforehand, and that was something she obviously used to her advantage. You get that and you're like, oh my my god you genuinely didn't know like you didn't listen to a word they said you had no idea what the consequences of your action was you thought you were helping but you weren't so one thing that i find like extremely relatable um is this idea of sort of like um bourgeoisie culture mm-hmm. versus counterculture yes right? and you feel that tension throughout the whole film like from the moment that like you see the two of them walking down the street and they bump into this couple who are Um, holding their baby carriage and you immediately understand that there's a tension between this counterculture um, and this bourgeois familial Mm -hmm. um, type of life and I think it's very interesting because there is this question that comes up throughout the film about them having children yeah you know why aren't you you know her boss keeps asking her you know do you want to have children why aren't you a mother um and children are the orgasms of the world which is the weirdest thing in the world weirdest comment totally that's well that's her t-shirt and also that was on lululemon bags a while ago i know it's a thing i don't get i don't i don't even know what that means really really no these are things i can't make up can't be real it's a it's a thing it's a thing we will google this (laughs) lululemon's done worse but that is one of the things they have done yeah the bourgeois culture is it's they don't you don't see it as much in the movie, but it's definitely a tension that's there, and that they're trying to find. I mean, they make their income off of finding stuff and selling it to people who have more money and know better about. Like they buy a pair of statues from a lady for five dollars, and the statues are worth thousands of dollars, and they like. There's a weird like, they're, even though they have all these ethics and these things that they values they have, they're still you know, they're fucking people over to make their living, which is just the same as anybody. They're trapped by the system like we all are. And I think one of the fascinating things is the first time you see them, they're having a fancy dinner, you know? And they're not just like ordering sodas and ordering the cheapest thing in the menu. They're drinking wine, which I'm presuming is nice. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're having their meal. It's And it's, it's such an interesting opening image. And it's so clear that these are people that whose ideals are very strange they have their thing they know what they like um and then they throw that in with don mckellar's um appreciation of the objects he has of like oh you can't play that one because it's mint condition so it's worth a lot of money you know even for appreciating the music for what it is it's and it never feels overbearing or over the over the head as we're talking about i'm like oh well obviously these are things they did but it never feels like it's too much everything feels right yeah, there, there are definitely some like, there. I had as a boy and watching this, and I saw Don McKellar's character doing things. I was like, "There's nothing a boy likes better than explaining the things that he thinks makes him cool to a girl." Yeah, and so true. <laughs> and like, and like, I mean, we've one of the plot developments is uh, Susan's bike gets broken, and he fixes it for. Her. And there's this moment where like he realizes that she's vulnerable and needs his help, and that's like yeah that's a very like telling turn like like 
as much as you can be as aware of all of these problems as you want to be, but you're still going to, there's still, life is still itself. And that's kind of like one of the things I like the, the most about this is like, like just seeing like what happens when you trap yourself by your own values. Like at some point I always feel like free yourself, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why I wanted to scream at them the whole movie. I'm like, you can free yourself from all this if you would just, recognize that you have a right to be a person and you're not going to fix the whole world but you can fix your little backyard you know which is what tracy wright's trying to do with her volunteer work although she's, why she's volunteering for what she's volunteering for who knows it's, how she made I that mean, that choice, seems right? like punishment in a way too yeah like that's that line more than anything but there was something i was oh it's about the police presence in the movie is very like they're always they're almost every scene where they're outside there's a police car in the background or something like that and i was thinking if you're going to make this movie in 2019 there's no way you could do it without addressing white privilege true which is me throwing something into this podcast that maybe doesn't need to be here but i mean susan's character is a drug dealer and she gets away with basically selling drugs off her bicycle by being white yeah and she's and, very cautious about it, and they do talk about that. But I think you're right, that had she been pulled over, she just would have lost it. She wouldn't have gone to prison for it. And, yeah, it's, like, that's why they never get challenged or questioned or anything. I still feel like that's somehow inherent in the film, yeah. though. Like, I think there's something... Well, her um, fashion choices, like, her her berets and things. Like, she's obviously, she leans into playing into this character that she's decided she's going to be. Like, like the character in the movie has decided to be more like them and is playing into that. and. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I also find like, um, maybe because of the white privilege aspect, like I find it like deeply relatable mm -hmm. in a way. Like I find, um, Dan and Linda to both be, um, extremely relatable characters, even though we're throughout this, we've sort of been critical of them. I find even that moment when they're having dinner, um, there's like a sense of like, white privilege and self-hatred they hate that they're sort of fulfilling this sort of bougie um tradition of like drinking nice wine and eating food but they're still indulging in it because there's some part of them that thinks that that will fulfill some um deep sense of happiness that they need in the moment or they're um, not good at celebrating is is what i took away from that like this is it's almost like they've forgotten what it's like to feel good yeah there's constant guilt, which is, I think, sort of the connection to white privilege is there's this constant sense of guilt throughout the film. But I think, like, even this, like, idea of family, I think that's even part of it. They're rejecting all of these norms. Mm -hmm. Even admitting their own feelings for themselves, for each other, right? And it's not yeah. rekindled until they, they are able to have that moment of catharsis and then they're able to fuck again. Yeah, and they're rejecting this idea of the nuclear family um, and they're rejecting this idea of ever wanting kids. But then there is like that moment in the film where they're holding Susan on the bike in between them. And I felt like this is them yeah. being parents. This is them adopting a child and raising it. And I think they have recreated um, like their own sort of bougie culture without necessarily realizing it. For better or for worse, right? They're obviously very bad parents. But speaking of, uh, you know, good things, we're at favorite moments, guys. What are your favorite moments? Okay, so it's the moment where the three of them, uh, Dan, Susan, Linda, are sitting in the living room, smoking a joint, and up to this point, uh, Susan and Dan 
had been the ones doing it exclusively together. And there had been that sort of like sexual chemistry. And then all of a sudden, uh, Susan's attention goes towards Linda. And suddenly she's trying to learn from her and gain her respect. And there's a change in the power dynamic. It's no longer about sexuality. It's about respect Mm -hmm. and her trying to sort of gain the admiration of uh, Linda. Meanwhile, Dan is downstairs. Um, He seems so pathetic in this moment (laughs) because you realize like he is so desperate um, for that adoration and for the attention from this young woman. And I think it's just like, I don't know, it's like that changing um, of relationships in that moment that's really powerful. And I also love in that moment, um, Linda talks about, she's showing Susan like her photographs. And she's, you know, Susan's like, wow, this is amazing. This is art, you're an artist. And she's like, no, I don't make art. Um, I recycle art. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting idea of um, whether or not they're artists, you know, they're they're obviously like very talented people, very crafty, but they're rejecting art. I think once again as this sort of like bourgeois yeah, cultural output. Exactly, exactly. I like that moment for Susan. I think for Susan, it goes from a curiosity or a fascination to like all of a sudden she has uh, Linda as a role model. She, oh, here's somebody actually. You know, like, yeah, that sexual tension between her and Dan is like, it's there and it gives her access to things, but it's kind of like, it's still a barrier. But when, when she has this sort of, oh, it's a role model, somebody I can look up to, somebody who's actually like a woman who I can identify with, it almost is, that's the moment where Susan sort of becomes more empowered. I feel like that's like, that's for her. She's like, ah, now I can do this too. Because she's not even aware that Linda exists at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite moment is I love when they hand Tracy Wright a screaming baby and you know that they just handed Tracy Wright a screaming baby and just watched what she would do and she does and it's so beautiful and the honesty of that moment and it doesn't feel contrived at all she's just holding this thing being like what do I do with you and there's no instinct of like to coddle or to coo or to try to quiet it down she just stares at it like it's a like a foreign object and then just leaves it on the chair and walks away and it's such a beautiful moment that's so thoughtful and i'd never really seen i'd never seen anyone do that before put that in a put that in a film of like yeah this is not my child and i have no responsibility for this and i'm going to take responsibility for myself and myself alone and that's such a fascinating statement to make especially you know for a white dude i'm gonna come right and say it to have that perspective to interrupt you as a white dude but the the director's (laughs) discipline as an editor to have all of that be one long continuous shot it's brilliant yeah is like i was like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A-okay, good work. Uh, so I think we're all saying, go get this movie, because it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I did tease that there was another movie that was meant to be made before this um, that unfortunately did not get made. This was the original pitch for the film. It was a movie called Bad Chloe. And what it was about was a couple of young radicals who were in love, and the script ended with the character of Chloe suicide bombing the Molson Indy after her boyfriend Nick is run over by a Coca-Cola truck. He was meant to pitch this at 9 a.m. on September 11th at TIFF. So that went well. <laughs> and as a direct result, we got this movie, which I'm not going to lie, this seems like a better premise than that one. So maybe that's a good thing that we it's didn't see. It's a more this. honest premise. I agree. 
I think this, yeah, I think this one sits more at the aging punk rock ideal more. But hey, dude got to meet a whole bunch of people and he got to edit Super Duper Alice Cooper. So he's living the dream, right? Uh, Chloe, how do people find you and your work? Yes, I have a website. And so it's very easy to find because it's my name, ChloeSosaSims.com. And everything is there that you'd need to know perfectly about me. Perfect. Uh, And uh, any idea of when your new film is on track to be released? Yeah, so I'm working on it now. I would say it's probably in early production. Um, It's a film about women in politics. I'm following three female politicians, one in Canada, one in the U.S., and one in the U.K. as they sort of negotiate their way through the old school institution of politics. Fascinating. So it's sort of like um, I'm trying to uh, delve into sort of the political satire um, space with this film. So should be interesting hopefully i'm excited that sounds awesome i'm really looking forward to it uh how about you adam um you can find me sometimes on twitter at the lean over that that's it that's it you're very funny you're very funny and your selfies delight me to no end and you've got cute puppy in your pictures every now and then every now and then when i go back and visit my mom's chihuahua who is wonderful yeah well i'm glad you could step in today oh thank you yeah a pleasure to come back and talk to everybody again about smart movies with smart people this is one of my favorite things that's why i do this podcast uh so for me you can find me on twitter i am atlas shrimpton that's the masculine the shrimpton over there i'm not quite as funny as adam is but uh, you know i have my moments every now and then when i get a good zinger uh and of course come follow us on the podcast twitter at rcm pod guys we've got some great stuff going on over there and uh if you're not following i am interviewing filmmakers about their movies almost every wednesday at this point so that's uh, a nice little parallel series if you haven't checked that out yet i think that's just about everything so chloe do you want to go get a moose head yeah yes (laughs) thanks for listening to the royal canadian movie podcast if you like what we're doing please remember to rate us and subscribe on itunes or on your favorite podcatcher it helps people find our podcast and canadian media they love come chat with us at rcm pod on facebook or on twitter at rcm pod Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.